Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we've got a very, very awesome guest on the show. We've got Dr. Neve, who is a medical researcher in cardiovascular disease prevention, which is always a good thing. Welcome to the show, Dr. Neve. Hi, thank you for having me, Amelia. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm going to start with hopefully an easy question. Can you tell us a bit about what is your job? So my job is as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research. Essentially, I spend most of my days being like the rung out from a PhD. So I'm really active doing research. I'm setting up new studies. I'm collecting data. I'm applying for grants. Typically, you can expect me to be having conversations with other academics about what way we should go about doing research and thinking really deeply about what kinds of questions we need to answer to reduce the number of people experiencing heart attack and stroke so that we can prevent cardiovascular disease. Fantastic. So you're a little bit out from your PhD. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you've found through those three or more years of research? Sure. Yeah. So I'm actually one of the really fortunate research unicorns is what I've called it in that my PhD work received national grant funding. So that's what I'm working on for the next few years. And it's pretty exciting. So my work used a really simple, we designed an app that essentially when somebody goes for a blood test to have their cholesterol done, it asks them some questions like whether or not they smoke or have diabetes and also measures their blood pressure. And the beauty of that is then it sends that information to the lab where it's matched with their cholesterol results. And what we can do is work out how likely it is that person will have a heart attack or a stroke in the next five years, according to best practice guidelines, and send that information back to that doctor that referred that patient. So all in all, what it does is it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to complete this app, but it sends really powerful information to that patient's doctor to inform them about what kind of medical treatment or lifestyle interventions a patient might need. And my whole PhD, which is, that sounds simple in theory, but, you know, I've spent the last four years of my life <laughs> solely focused on making that app, making it as user-friendly as possible for the staff at Pathology Services, for the patients who complete it, um, making the report as accessible and useful to the GP as possible. And essentially, I did a number of studies around that. So the first one, my piece de resistance was uh, making the app and testing it in practice with 300 patients at one pathology site. And essentially, we found that it worked. Patients found it really easy to complete the app. We'd made like a custom booth that they could sit in. They really liked that. It took on average less than 17 minutes to do it. All in all, we were really happy. It, it didn't work every time. About 10% of the time, it, it didn't work to send the information to the lab. And that was really useful for us. So we found some really valuable things from the patients answering our survey, but whether or not they liked it and what they did and didn't like. But then also from actually the app collecting objective data. And then another study that I did was using qualitative research. I compared, I asked GPs, what they currently did in practice to prevent cardiovascular disease, what was challenging about that, and then thinking about all of those things, what could be done about that with this new service that we designed and tested? You know, how would that change the way that they do their, their care? And essentially, most of them were like, that sounds really great. Here's some stuff I'd love for you to change so that you can make it even more useful. But overall, if you did the service, it would make my life easier and I would order it simply because 
I don't need to spend all my time collecting all of that information. What's really important for me is to talk about that information with my patient. So those are kind of like the two big findings from my PhD. I also, um, a bit left field for somebody who works in cardiovascular disease, I compared um, the informed consent process among patients. So most people probably uh, know the concept of informed consent. In the context of research, what I'm talking about is, you know, when you sign up to take part in a study, you should be kind of clued in to what the risks or benefits and what's expected of you as part of that. I kind of compare it to when you download an app and you're kind of like, you inherently almost know what you're going to get out of it, but who reads all of the fine print, you know? And so there's inherent challenges associated with, you know, the volunteerism nature and quite often in medical research, the randomization nature of clinical research because you might be signing up to a new drug um, but you don't actually know if you're getting the placebo the fake version of it or the actual active drug and essentially we decided to compare in the context of our new service giving somebody a piece of paper which is the traditional approach delivered by a researcher answering some questions about it or giving a multimedia animated video version with some audio on specific parts um, afterwards as an optional add-on um, and essentially, we found that people loved the video and it was more effective for helping people understand what they'd signed up to. So that was really exciting for us because the service that we're building of this risk assessment approach through pathology services to identify people at risk of heart attack or stroke is massively scalable. And there's no point in my mind of making technology that could save lives if you can't implement it broadly. Um, and to do that, we needed a way to communicate to patients that this was research that they would be signing up to something that may or may not benefit them in the short term, but here was the long-term goal. So it was really exciting for me to kind of dip my toes into the informed consent field. It's something I've become really passionate about since. So those are kind of like the three major studies of my PhD. There were a couple of other ones too, but one of them's not published yet, so I'm not going to get into it. And the other one, essentially, we looked at whether or not your blood pressure changes when you have your blood taken. My, the group that I'm actually in at Menzies is interested in blood pressure research predominantly. Um, so we compared blood pressure taken on a separate day to that taken when we take somebody's blood. So we looked at it immediately before putting the needle in their arm, during the needle being in there and the needle being afterwards. And um, we essentially found that the blood pressure didn't change massively. Anxiety and pain wasn't related to the changes in blood pressure. And if we were going to use that blood pressure to estimate how likely it is you'll have a heart attack or stroke, then it really didn't matter because it didn't change enough to change your risk score. So that's my thesis in five minutes, sorry. <laughs> That's fantastic. There's so much you've got going on there and I kind of want to know all about all of it. <laughs> I've, I've sort of got two follow-up questions. So one is, has this kind of research been done before? Because it seems kind of obvious. <laughs> um, it's been done in various ways. Like I, I think this, my project is the kind of project where people go, why hasn't this been done before? Um, so in the context of, you know, just putting a booth in a healthcare setting and being like, here, answer some questions. No, not in a fully automated way to the best of my ability. I am aware of that happening. I don't think it has. Um, so certainly in lots of other contexts of waiting rooms, that's we're trying to utilize the waiting room here because we may as well make use of that time, right? Rather than just sitting there doing nothing. So in the context of that, some places have put in, you know, a check your blood pressure kind of station or some places have give people forms to fill out. But in terms of a fully automated, using completely validated questionnaires and validated blood pressure devices, no, that hasn't been done to the best of my knowledge. I could be corrected and I'd be happy to, to be. 
there are other kind of health check stations that have been introduced and popped up around the world. You might have seen ones where you, it's like a stand-up kind of booth thing and you put your arm in a in a cuff, like in a tube, and that measures your blood pressure. There are a number of kind of drawbacks to that. One, blood pressure is highly variable. So uh, you need to sit with both your feet flat on the floor and your back supported and your arm at heart level to get an accurate reading. And you need to use a validated cuff-based device. So there's a number of things there, one being the posture would be hard to maintain in this tube-based machine and then two i'm not actually sure about whether or not those devices are validated a lot of blood pressure devices on the market aren't validated in fact only about 10 percent are validated for accuracy so that would be something that's a big concern that's a big focus of our research group is just looking at how many devices on the market are not validated and how we could improve that so i think it is it's you know the simple but super novel approach and i think a large part of why it can be done now is because there's things like my hr Electronic health records are really common now. So we're not actually pulling any data from any electronic health records, but we have the IT or the tech infrastructure and ability to send information really securely and link up networks in a new way that, you know, it's kind of nothing really fandangled about it in the IT space, but it's just linking up pieces of Lego in a really simple and straightforward way that just joins the dots between a lot of services and essentially streamlines the whole process for the patient and the GP. So yeah, it seems so simple and so obvious, but not that I'm aware of that it's been done before, which is exciting. It's fantastic. It's so awesome to hear tech being used for good like this. Like warms my heart. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I always make the joke that like, I don't know how I ended up doing a tech-based project because like when I started my PhD on day one or two, like I couldn't set up a second screen. I had to go down to IT and be like, can someone just like make sure I'm doing this right? Because I just could not get it to work. So the, the the guys in IT and I are good pals now and they always make fun that like, how did I end up being on the project that's making an app? <laughs> but now, you know, I've been so fortunate to work with so many awesome IT experts who've been IT experts in health for like, you know, 10, 15 plus years. And they've really taken me under their wing and, and now I'm just like really up in it and I'm excited by all of the ways that we can innovate healthcare. Oh, there's, there's so much potential. It also... Well, I think it highlights the value of bringing together different fields and through that kind of mixture of stuff, you get awesome new ideas. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that I've enjoyed most about my PhD research and now my postdoc is that it was so multidisciplinary. I got to try lots of different techniques of collecting data, but I also got to just try lots of different, like see lots of different research perspectives and then also working with industry at every time point meant that I was always thinking about what's this going to look like in practice? How is this going to work for our industry partner? It was very applied. And since we've, you know, received national funding and moved on to the next stage where we're, so we're about to now apply all of this research into a statewide randomized control trial across Tasmania. So we're putting the app and the booth in 20 different pathology centers and half of them will have the report with the extra information about their risk of heart attack and stroke sent to their doctor and half won't and the idea is then we can evaluate the clinical care or the decisions the doctors make in response to that report and see whether or not it actually changes clinical practice so it's super exciting but even just in the step up we've been able to further develop our multidisciplinary perspective so we've got people specifically focused on health literacy specifically focused on evaluating whether or not the health economics of this makes sense But also we've recruited members of the public to come and 
be co-investigators. So we have a consumer advisor group made up of people who represent and reflect our community and they can advise on things every step of the way. And I think having that really rich, diverse pool of perspectives to draw on has really strengthened our project. And we're constantly taking the time to hear all of those voices and make amendments as we go. Awesome, because you never know where the next good idea is going to come out of. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes it's really left field. Yeah. Well, that's the best ideas, right? <laughs> it's Feel free not to answer this, but it sort of sounds like you're flirting a bit with big data and like that kind of massive data analytics stuff. Is that sort of something that you're starting to look into? Um, I like the idea of flirting with it. Uh, I don't necessarily think that that's where I'm going. I think actually... You know, when I started my PhD, I was, and I was only dipping my toes in tech. I was like, oh my God, machine learning and artificial intelligence and big data and the electronic health record's going to change the world. And, and then in my thesis, there's like a whole, like, you know, three to five pages of discussion where I'm just like, the electronic health record is really flawed. Big data is really flawed. <laughs> um, and it's not to say that they're not extremely powerful pillars that we could use and they are but I think that what I came to my conclusion is that somebody has to feed the algorithms that are used in AI and, and I don't know enough about them I'm not an expert in them but I think until we start to get to points where we can use those data and apply them like make the models in a sample or in a population that represents where it's going to be applied then it's not appropriate so um, for example the risk algorithm that we use to estimate whether or not somebody might have a heart attack or a stroke in five years, that algorithm was developed in 1991. It's just a basic mathematical statistical algorithm. It's as old as I am. And since then, there's been 380 new algorithms. And, you know, we haven't, we now use one that was used in the United States. That's where it was founded. The United States have abandoned it and moved on to something new. So in that instance, I think there's absolutely an opportunity for something like the app that I've developed to collect lots and lots of contemporary data in Australian population and use that data to make something that is actually much more appropriate for our current population. And that means, you know, taking into consideration the rates of heart attack and stroke now compared to what they were in 1991, the prevalence of modern risk factors like smoking rates or diabetes rates or obesity rates compared to what they were in 1991 because population trends happen over time but like I would say we are profoundly different to what we were in 1991 there's far few people smoking for example but obesity rates have increased but obesity isn't in that mathematical model so the short answer would be I am cautiously optimistic that there are uses for big data but I think that um, it takes a really well thought out database to answer a very specific question to do it well. So I think we see a lot of examples where there's large databases being used, but there's lots of missing data. I mean, that still is used in a lot of cases, but I'd really love to get to the point where the app that I've created and with, with all of our collaborators and with all of the really, you know, we've from the outset thought about this as a team, you know, 20 IT experts sitting in a room thinking, we don't want it for it to work for 5,000 people at the next stage. We want it to work for 50,000 people or 500,000 people, 5 million people. And then once we get it to that point, it shouldn't take us that long to be able to, you know, improve the way that we identify who's at risk of a heart attack, a stroke. And sure, we might use 
artificial intelligence in that process, but we might also just use well-tried and tested statistical methods. And it really, I think, has yet to be seen what we'll do, but I am excited by it, but I do, I'm somewhat cautious too, but it's probably because it's not my area of expertise. Well, and I think we've also seen it go wrong in a whole range of applications and it's sort of like, oh, maybe we'll just hold off or keep it in mind, but don't necessarily think it's this like silver bullet that'll save the world immediately. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think we can't just, I think when I thought about it first, I was like, oh, wow, these computers are going to be able to see things that we couldn't in the data. They're going to see patterns and stuff. (laughs) But actually what I've seen from my reading is generally it's people using their knowledge to apply that to the computer and then the computer just amplifies that. So a really good example of that is um, a reoffenders version that was trialed in the United States. And it didn't put in any racial cues, but it didn't have to. It just used proxies instead. And essentially what was happening was just if you were um, a young male black offender, you were likely to have longer, harsher sentences, I believe. I could be misquoting that. Um, And essentially we just saw that our inherent prejudices or the, the lack of data that we might have. So, for example, in cardiovascular disease, my area, the data is predominantly white and it's predominantly male and it's predominantly older to middle aged. So that just skews the data that we have available to make a model to use AI. So I think until we start to get more diverse or until we build contemporary data sets with the viewpoint of making using them for AI that we can't really do it just yet, but soon, hopefully. Yeah, and it definitely sounds like you're on the right track to help us get that data for starters. Yeah, I think an app like this has huge potential for something like that. And I'm excited to think about what kind of ways we can make it more um, innovative. What other settings can we put it in? Yeah, just to really mix it up. You know, we've got the bare bones now. I'm kind of like, what, what else can we do with it? It shouldn't be that hard. So it's fun. It's always good for me to be like, well, this shouldn't be that difficult that I go into, you know, a room full of IT experts. I'm like, I've had an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Please help me make it a reality. (laughs) Yeah. Would you like to also talk about the work that you do with That's What I Call Science? Because I think uh, all our listeners need to congratulate you on a recent nomination for something too. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So That's What I Call Science is a radio show and podcast that I founded in the second year of my PhD. So it's it would have been towards the end of my second year. So it's, it's, it'll be two years in February that since it started. And um, I was recently nominated for the Science Communicator of the Year Awards at the Tasmanian STEM Excellence Awards. So I was pretty chuffed with that. That's pretty cool. Didn't win, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but essentially, that's what I call science. Started off just on um, a local radio station called Edge Radio. And the idea was just to showcase the amazing science, technology, engineering, maths talent in Hobart because it is more scientists per capita than anywhere else in Australia. Uh, I, mean, I once heard that it was anywhere else in the world, but I'm not sure I really believe that. And then it, uh, when I started it, I was really keen to make it collaborative and team-based because sanity is nice and running a podcast is a lot of work as I'm sure you're aware um and I really wanted that team to be women because I think sometimes in STEM in particular you know we have this cloud of grant funding hanging over us and it can create a really competitive environment I really just wanted to create an opportunity where women could work together on something that would collectively improve our track records collectively give us opportunities to elevate each of us to be leaders in STEM in our local community 
I mean, I was really chuffed. So in our first year, we got nominated for Best New Programme on Community Radio across Australia, and we won, which was huge. I didn't even know we'd been nominated. It was amazing. Wow. I know. It was pretty awesome. Um, so around that time, then we decided to start releasing the show as a podcast. And then we we um, got invited to be nationally syndicated. So now our show is, is shared to 160 radio stations across the, sh- the country. And we're now a team of like nine women, each covering a different STEM field. We've got two Indigenous hosts. And we just are really committed to celebrating diversity in science, but getting to talk about nitty gritty science in a way that is accessible and just throwing real curveballs at it. So like recently we had um, an Indigenous guest on called Dr. Rowena Ball, who was talking about maths. And she talked about maths in a way that I've never heard anybody speak about it. And I was so excited. It was like magical and just completely humanized. And I think that that's what we try and come back to in the show all the time is that science and scientists or people in engineering is not just old white men with elbow patches. (laughs) It's quite often riveting, exciting conversations where people are thinking really deeply about problems and they're just curious and I think we're quite playful and there's just a lot of things that I love about the sector but I feel like that we don't get to project it out very often or we don't get to celebrate it so it's been a really beautiful part of my time in Tasmania and it's something I'm really proud of to have set up and this year we received grant funding to start delivering youth workshops so we've done one so far we've got two planned for the next couple of weeks by the time this airs we'll have done hopefully four where we essentially do we go and we do a workshop with some young people and we tell them all about the show and the good thing about spreading the good word of science and then we talk them through how to make a run sheet and how to ask questions and how to interview a guest and then we come back two weeks later and offline we have some back and forth with them and then they have two weeks to prepare and then they record a whole episode themselves so I just come and I just push the buttons for them but they do everything and they interview an expert guest and the one that we did was just amazing it was so good so usually our shows are only 27 minutes long because they have to be that's the cut point for national syndication um this one went on for like 45 minutes and i just could not stop them i was like this is amazing (laughs) so i'm really excited to see where we go with the directions we're taking at the moment and to see what else we can do to enrich our local community but also just keep supporting other podcasts like yourself and supporting other women to be really vocal when talking about science and to have some authority when talking about it. I think that's something that we felt really strong about since the start. Like we need to be credible, we need to be authoritative, but we need to be accessible. Awesome. I love all of that. (laughs) It's so cool. Yeah, it's been really fun. And working with kids, like the questions that they'll ask, sometimes you're just like, that's a really good question that either I wouldn't have thought of or I wouldn't have actually had like the guts to ask that question. Yeah, 100%. I can't wait. So in a couple of weeks, we're doing an interview with some grade fives on climate change. And I cannot wait. (laughs) I'm just like, I can't wait to see what they ask. Um, And we're doing another one with some teenage girls aged 13 with some tech experts. We're going to be doing a pretty tech heavy episode. And I just think, yeah, young people just think about things in a really different way. But we've specifically, so we've aligned those workshops to the Australian curriculum. And we're specifically engaging with schools to try and get those students that aren't already thinking about STEM. So maybe, you know, they show a little bit of potential, but they haven't engaged with outreach yet. They're not really sure what subjects they're going to pick because I was actually 
terrible at school and I hated science. There was, I, there was not many subjects that I actively liked, to be fair, but I really despised science. And it wasn't until kind of later in high school, I randomly did um, a Lego robotics after school thing. Um, I think because I had to, because I'd gotten in trouble and uh, I really liked it, but I didn't, it didn't connect the dots for me that that was science or that that would link to a STEM career pathway. So I'm really keen to try and get to those students that maybe haven't had a chance yet to have their voices heard and to really give them a platform where it's like, okay, well, lots of people around Australia are going to hear your voice now. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic because oh, there's so many kids who you see, they've got that innate potential for science. They're curious and, you know, basically scientists are nosy and they've got <laughs> that, but something in them has squashed it or, or something in their environment has squashed that. And if you can get to them, you never know what they'll like come up with and yet yeah, who they'll grow into. Yeah, hundred percent. And you just, I think it just takes that little bit of showing someone that they're seen and valued and, that can mean uh, quite a lot to a young person, I think. So it meant quite a lot to me as a young person. I think I didn't really take it, realize how much it meant at the time. But looking back, I'm like, oh, there was a couple of really pivotal moments there. And I'm just really stoked. And I've got to say that we've had fantastic show um, support on That's What I Call Science. So, you know, the team at Edge Radio from Inspiring Australia, the Tasmania branch, but also from the Department of Education. So they've just been so generous to be like, hey, you guys are doing cool stuff. We'd like the kids in our school to be doing that kind of cool stuff. Can we make something work here? Um, and it's just been really wonderfully collaborative, I think, f- over the whole time that we've been running the show. And, yeah, if anybody has enjoyed your content, I'm pretty sure they would like ours. So, you know, please feel free to check it out. But I also just think more women doing podcasts is great because women are underrepresented in media and they're underrepresented in STEM. So that's just like take ownership of this new platform and have some authority and just run with it. And I think it's a really wonderful opportunity for us to just kind of be a movement. Definitely. And there's there's so many benefits of podcasts. And one I found is especially if I'm just recording by myself, I can talk for as long as I want and no one will talk over me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I do um it's so rare. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. I wonder if you've noticed anything in particular, you know, have you, do you interview male and female guests? And have you noticed any differences between those or have you noticed any sex differences in STEM? Yeah. So, well, yeah. I have interviewed a handful of guys on this podcast, but uh, that was quite early on. And they were people who got volunteered as opposed to wanted to be on necessarily. And so they were just, they had just as much imposter syndrome as the women that I get on the show. But for general uh, gender difference in STEM, I used to do a lot of outreach with like the little robots at a primary school level. And so we'd go in and do like five or six like rotations of look, robots are really cute and cool with year three, fours. And even at, at the difference between year three and four, the girls are already starting to know that they should sit back and the guys get to move forward. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? And I was like, this is ridiculous. They're cute robots. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, that, that was that was really quite confronting, actually, to see the difference just in one year, how, how much there was sort of this, like, no girls sit down and sit at the back. It's not that they're not curious. Their eyes light up just as much. It's just that 
they're sort of like this social construct around whether or not they're encouraged to engage. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I think that, you know, that plays out in interesting ways. And I kind of wonder like how much survival bias we have in STEM because of the, the women maybe that end up in STEM either took a roundabout pathway to get here or they just challenged those societal norms and those gender norms from the get-go. But then also like, I notice interesting things when you're looking through a gender lens now of, you know, the amount of service roles that women take on or, you know, how easy it is for us to get guests that are women or men. We actually, so we um, have a, a quota <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have a, an inclusion, equity and diversity policy at our show and we track all of our guest stats um, for career level, whether or not they're culturally and linguistically diverse, their gender, that kind of thing, their subject area. And we essentially make sure that women are 60% of our guests um, and we ident- ideally want a bit of a split of um, early career researchers and late career researchers. Uh, and essentially we've just found that there hasn't been much of a difference, but I just find it interesting as a sector as a whole, why there's more men in the media called on as expert guests than women when, you know, I certainly haven't struggled to find women when I actively try to. No, well, and I haven't actively tried to, and I've ended up with all women. <laughs> they just volunteered. I was like, I'll probably have to get a guy on at some point for diversity because otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. The token man. <laughs> I believe they're called token blokes, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I I'm I'm pretty happy with this the split I've had so far, but there's no shortage of incredibly intelligent, articulate knowledgeable women who are willing to put their voices forward and there's there's so many awesome chicks out there that know a huge amount about things that just blow my mind every time I have an interview yeah I think that's been one of the really joyous things of like starting a podcast I'm sure you've experienced too it's just like mind blown every interview just like what how do you know all those things how does that thing exist (laughs) Uh, it's definitely a a very lucky pleasure to have from all of the volunteer hours that go into running the podcast oh yeah it it has a high price but you you get so many I get to talk to so many awesome people who give me their time and their stories for free and it's just so energizing and I'm like there's so much awesome things in the world yeah it definitely does restore a bit of faith (laughs) yeah yeah and I'm not even doing a PhD or have done a PhD so I like I think it's easy to get a little bit cynical and tired towards the end of a PhD yeah I mean I definitely so I remember when I started the that's what I call science um I think I had just had my year three my year two review that did not go well at all terribly um (laughs) really bad (laughs) and I remember just being like asked if I would start it. It was off the back of I'd done the school's outreach program for National Science Week where I'd visited like, I think collectively we see like 2% of Tasmanians' school children. And I'd loved it and I'd been on ABC and it was really great. And then I happened to be at the very last event that I was doing, I happened to be at an event with the president of Edge Radio, who's also one of the comms people for National Science Week in Tasmania. And uh, the next week she emailed me and was like, you should really start a, a radio show on Edge Radio. And I was like, no. And then my year two review went terribly. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to start a radio show. <laughs> um, and I don't think that's generally the coping mechanism, but it's so funny that 
those lovely stories and the faith people had in me to to do justice to those stories really just gave me so much motivation and every single week it reminded me about why I love science and what I love about STEM and it also gave this wonderful platform to actually be the type of leader I wanted to be, create something that um, was aligned to my values and I think I really needed that at that time because I was facing a very hard slog to get my PhD back on track. Um, and I really don't think I would have been able to do it if I hadn't started the show, actually, which is ironic. <laughs> what I needed was more work. <laughs> uh, you needed the right kind of work that invigorates you. Yeah, for sure. Is your plan to keep doing it? Yeah, I reckon. So um, there's a wonderful man called Dr. Shane Huntington, who has been running a show for 28 years on Triple R, community radio sh station. Um, so that's the record. We'll see how long Shane goes for he did start in his honours year, whereas I was a couple of years behind. But uh, yeah, I kind of don't ever see giving up on it, to be honest. My goal is to get it to... So I want to be able to operate where we're giving grants for women in STEM organisation um, initiatives and where we're doing youth workshops regularly. Maybe that will have to become a sister podcast because we'll have too much content. Um, and that we're doing the show weekly. So I'm I, my long-term strategy is that this will be a financially viable, sustainable, not-for-profit organization in the next five years. There we go. I've been bold and I've put it out in the world. <laughs> but that's my goal. But yeah, that's where I'm, I'm trying to aim towards and that it will just be a thing that I will forever do, but ideally have someone who is like employed to actually help it reach the level that it could in Tasmania because I think they were really crying out for a dedicated hub that drives forward um, initiatives on diversity in STEM in Tasmania because, you know, Melbourne has some initiatives. I'm aware of Franklin Women, which I believe is in Sydney, but it could be in Melbourne, I'm not sure. But that, I mean, that's one of the initiatives that I would see that I'm like, oh, that's amazing. And I think we're just a little bit isolated down here. We don't have these kind of focal networks. And I would like to get to the point where we're that. Um, and I'm in talks with other you know science engagement and science outreach groups to just try and collectively pool our efforts and do something really great for the local community because I think we're all trying to in a very siloed way so yeah I think I'll do us do it forever it will be life my partner likes to joke that I'll be retired from science but I'll still be running that's what I call science <laughs> fantastic and I'm going to get all the listeners to this show to hold Neve to that and in five years it's going to be <laughs> infinitely more than what it is now which I have no doubt is possible. And of course, if anyone's listening who is in a position to support or whether it's moral or financial, whatever, you should like get in touch because it's obviously awesome work that's happening. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. We're always happy to chat with people that are doing good things and whose values align with ours. Yeah. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm going to try and get back on track for a little bit. What are some of the skills, like you've realistically, you've got two jobs going on. What are some of the skills that you need to do those jobs? <laughs> I think that's really interesting because I, th I think that there's a huge amount of overlap between my research work and the work that I do with that's, called, well, that's what I call science. I think the number one skill that you need um, or that, that I am trying to cultivate is strategic thinking and having a strategic mindset. And I don't know if that's just because I'm in a, the academic side of the STEM sector, but it just seems like every decision you make it's going to have a butterfly effect <laughs> and you have to be thinking about where you're going to be in like three to five years time. And does this 
help the domino effect that needs to happen. And I think that that happens also with the science communication work that I do. It's like, is every decision I'm making the best to try something new for that's what I call science to see if that's the direction we need to go. Um, so I think strategic thinking and planning is one aspect of it. The other would be a real solid commitment to always thinking about whether or not you're communicating as clearly um, and as accessibly as possible. I remember the first ever conference I went to in academia and I just felt like the biggest pleb <laughs> because I felt like I didn't understand anything. Now, it's pretty uncommon for an undergraduate student in second year of university to go to a conference, admittedly. But I just really felt like everything was very inaccessible. And I think that that stuck with me. And I remember um, I have dyslexia. And I remember when I first started to have this real love for blood pressure of all things. Uh, and it stems from a real love for the, like, the wonder of the heart and the arteries and the way that they change throughout the arterial tree from our heart down to our toes. Like I, that just, it blows my mind and I love it. And I love to talk about it and think about it. But I remember one evening at university sitting and reading a paper one paper for probably about four hours to just try and decipher what it meant um and it was just really painstaking and i remember thinking that i was just not cut out for science at all but i really had this perseverance and i suppose that's another skill that you probably need some, some hustle about you a bit of perseverance but yeah i think just being dynamic and i've kind of lost my point where i was going oh that clear communication thing so for me, between the dyslexia and this, these feelings that I have of just being like, oh, acting is so not for me, I'm so not clever enough. Um, it's made me very committed in every single talk that I give of making, not losing the science. You have to keep it credible and do it justice and talk about the limitations and um, not lose any of the detail, but you have to make it as accessible as possible. And ideally to somebody who's from a non-scientific audience, if possible. And then I just think being dynamic and resilient like all those things to me are so much more important than being able to run a specific statistical stat test or code in r but i'm not very good at coding in r so maybe that's why i say that but i think that there's so much more openness required to do good science and to be collaborative and very rarely is somebody doing good science completely on their own it's usually part of big teams where you're having to be outspoken and ask a lot of questions and think deeply about what somebody's just said and then say, well, how does that apply to my setting? And, you know, every talk or seminar that I go to, I'm like, well, how would this apply to my research? Or how does my research apply to theirs? What's the link here? What methods are they doing? And why is that interesting? Or why is that maybe not so interesting? Should they be doing something different? And I think that that constant critique has really strengthened me as a person I think when I was younger, I was quite naive and I was just happy to go along and um, just this real happy-go-lucky Irish kid. <laughs> and now I'm not cynical. I think I'm still um, I'm more pragmatic than I used to be, but I'm, I'm very critical of just what I see. So, you know, if that's in the media or if that's at a talk, I'm like, well, is that, what is that really telling me? And I think that those are the key skills, being dynamic, being critical, and just having a bit of creativity and a bit of spunk. I love that. And I think Critical thinking is something, especially this year, that we've, and this year is currently 2020, that we've really seen needs to be, it shouldn't just be a skill for scientists, right? Oh, 100%. But I also think, like, how do we foster that? Like, we've just had the results for the US presidential election, and they're not even 100% confirmed yet, but, you know, Biden's won. And it just blows my mind that that many people, Trump spoke, and Trumpism spoke to that many people. 
that just blows my mind. So for Science Week this year, and that's what I call science, we did a campaign against misinformation and we had a couple of episodes, or three episodes, and we had a panel discussion. And the panel discussion was phenomenal. You can still watch it on YouTube. And we really talked about the roles and responsibilities of the media or, or of social media companies or of scientists to talk in such a way that you actually flip and connect with people. <laughs> because like, I just... I don't understand who or what the way Trump talks is connecting with people. Like how? I don't understand, but I need to, you know, like I just kind of watch it and I get, feel so um, put off and so horrified that I'm like, Oh God. But I think that the, a real risk there is to feel that the people who are buying into that are somehow ignorant or somehow lesser. Whereas I really have gotten to the point after these election results where I'm like, I just want to understand how are those people thinking and what are they thinking and what is the link there that's happening? And is it just, we're never going to get those people to buy into Black Lives Matter. Why is that? And we're never going to get those people to think that women deserve equal pay though they're always going to think that women's role is primarily as caregiver i mean we still see that borne out in data that women are primarily caregiver um so i just yeah i'm kind of intrigued to just see what comes of all of that and how do we foster critical thinking but also keep empathy as a, a central part of that they're pretty big questions <laughs> yeah, sorry, I feel like it's not on a massive <laughs> random. What is critical thinking? How do we do it? Why is it important? <laughs> and I, th I think what you've said there, the understanding is so important because it's very easy as realistically academic elite people to end up in a bubble where we're surrounded by, you know, the, the echo chamber kind of thing of our bubble. And we do get uncomfortable when exposed to people like Trump speaking because it sort of seems it's like, you know, I could get my red pen out and, you know, dissect it, etc. But clearly that's speaking to something that somehow we need to expose ourselves to. Yeah, I think so. And I think just views that are different to ours, we, we kind of live in this vacuum of other educated people. And, yeah, just it's so alien to what my views are that I just don't know how. <laughs> but I feel like it's important to get the olive branch and to somehow see that viewpoint. But I, I, yeah, I don't know how. I don't have any answers to those big questions. <laughs> I reckon it'll just come down to trial and error because most things do. Yeah, exactly. The good old tried and tested method of hypothesis testing and reevaluating. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> okay, that's an awesome list of skills that we've combined together and like clearly we're on a path to solving world peace um <laughs> how have you ended up where you are because I'm, I'm feeling like you're not a Hobart local no I'm from Ireland so I decided to pursue science after I had done one year at university in Ireland um studying an arts degree in political science and Irish cultural studies and then I was you know madly in love with a Welsh man at the time so I ended up spending my summer there and I didn't go back to university in a nutshell. And ironically, I got into science after working at Specsavers or, you know, other high street opticians are available. And I was working there and I 
very quickly realized I was far more interested in like the health checks for the eyes and the images we would take of the back of the eyes and all of the important things you should do with contact lenses or like people would get eye infections because they didn't look after the glasses properly. And I was just way more interested in that than selling glasses. Even if we got commission, I was just like, this is so cool. So I very quickly realized at the time that I would probably quite like science. And I also, you know, there were a couple of like internal promotion options and things like that. It was just kind of like, you're not going to be considered for those unless you've got a degree because even people working in those types of roles at the time had university degrees. So I was like, oh, this is something I really need to do. And at the time I was like, I'm not, at the, I'm not anymore, disclaimer, but at the time I was like super uh, into fitness and eating well. And I was like, I'd really like to, you know, help with the obesity epidemic. Maybe I should study nutrition. So lo and behold, I went to a university open day and I wanted to study dietetics. And they told me my degree was, my high school results was definitely not going to get me anywhere near dietetics. <laughs> um, and I luckily met an Irish lecturer who was from just down like he's about 20 minutes he lives 20 minutes from where I live in Ireland growing up and he just instilled confidence in me from the moment I met him his name is Dr Barry McDonnell he's now associate professor and yeah he convinced me to study this course called biomedical sciences with sports uh with exercise health and nutrition and it just kind of flourished from there, really. And Barry was one of my, he was my first sponsor, mentor, advocate in science. Uh, he's a blood pressure specialist, lo and behold. And yeah, and after my second year, I decided to take a, he helped me secure a professional research training year where I took a gap year from uni and did a placement in a lab. I mean, a clinical lab, not like an animal model lab. And that was really cool. And then at the end of that year, Barry helped me write an abstract so I could go and present at an international conference in Poland. And he helped me get a grant and everything so I could go. Kudos to Barry. And while there, I met some guys from Australia who were presenting. And as you would have it, on the last day of the conference, who's in the bar, a Welshman, an Irishman, and some Aussies. And it usually doesn't end with, you know, a PhD scholarship in Tasmania, but essentially that's what happened. So we were all watching the rugby in this Irish bar in Krakow. And by the end of the night, the um, my now supervisor, Professor James Sharman, was like, so what do you want to do with your life after your last year at uni? And I was like, oh, I don't really know, but you guys seem pretty cool. Maybe I'd like to go to Tasmania and do a PhD. And he was like, cool, let's make it happen. We'll give you a scholarship. Come out, you'll have a great time. I was like, okay. <laughs> and I remember ringing my brother the next day because he'd been living in Melbourne for eight years at that time. And I called him and I was like, where's Tasmania? Like, I'm guessing it's <laughs> in Australia because they're Aussie, but like, where is it? <laughs> And my brother was just like, what are you talking about? So yeah, and that's um, a year, pretty much a year to the day later, I had moved out to start my PhD. And here I am, I'm going to stay here forever. They can't get rid of me now. I love it. So that's how I got into science. It was, I feel like um, the main thread is kind of realizing you're interested in something and then just saying yes, all of the time when opportunities come up, just kind of like, yeah, back yourself blindly with the confidence of an underqualified man. Fantastic. <laughs> and I just want to touch on like back right at the beginning, you mentioned that you were punished with Lego. And I just love the like so many kids are so desperate to play with Lego and you were punished with it. And it sort of like helped inspire you. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, so I think I was at the school. So when I was younger, I went to one secondary school and um, I was a real troublemaker. And long story short, I wasn't in that school for very long. And then I went to 
another school that was run by nuns. And this school actually didn't have detention. It just like, didn't exist as a thing there. So that kind of presented a conundrum for them with me. Because what do you do when somebody's not being very responsible? But they did lots of uh, lunchtime clubs and after-school extracurricular activities that I did not engage with. So, yeah, they had this Lego RoboCup challenge thing, and I think that they were struggling to get people wanting to do it. It was like one of the first years. And coincidentally, I recently judged that competition locally, and that was like a real lovely circle moment. But, yeah, so they, I had been naughty in class, and they're like, right, for the next six weeks, you have to go and do the Lego robotics thing. And I was like, what? You can't make me do that. And yeah, I met these two other girls in my class that were there for fun. <laughs> and um, I, yeah, I ended up really enjoying it and got really into it. Like, I remember I was so upset when we didn't win. <laughs> yeah, but we did win best display. So, you know, and I think it was a real turning point for me. But there was a couple of like turning points in that whole year. So in Ireland, they do this thing after you do your junior exams when you're 15, you can take what's called a transition year where you essentially learn lots of skills, like you run like a mini company, you do a theatre production. I don't know why you do a theatre production, but you do. Um, I think we learned Japanese, we learned loads of cooking things, uh, you do loads of field trips, like it's essentially just like a growing up year, essentially. You don't do any proper school curriculum. And they made me do that because I changed school just before that and my grades were pretty terrible. So yeah, during that year, um, I did the Lego thing, but there was also... Uh, a teacher in English who, Mrs. Rafferty and Diane, who I could never, Wade, I think. I can never remember her surname, I just remember Diane. Uh, we, they were in our English class and there, this public speaking opportunity came up and I didn't know that it had come up, but they ended up getting us to talk about um, social values and social justice. And I was usually pretty antagonistic in class. But in this one, I was actually talking a lot about what it meant to have social values and what it meant to uh, be a democracy and what it meant to speak up on behalf of people where uh, atrocities were happening and we didn't even realize it as a society. And I think a lot of that for me comes from the fact that my parents are from Belfast in Ireland and they grew up during the Troubles in Northern Ireland and they left Northern Ireland to move to the Republic because of those challenges. And I think that that instilled very strong social values in me. But anyway, in this class, I was given it gusto. And afterwards, it was Miss Wade. She said, there's this public speaking competition. I really think you should do it because you care a lot about some of these things, even though you try and act like you don't care about very much. Yeah. And I think that and the Lego thing were a real turning point for me because I went and I did, I wrote this speech about domestic violence and I ended up getting selected for like the next stage. Um, and we were all shocked. And that teacher, Miss Wade she, and Mrs. Rafferty sat with me and taught me how to pronounce my THs and how to pronounce my R's um, for hours before the next round. And they really we're like, you have a voice that matters. We just need to help you um, use it. Uh, and I think that that moment for me encapsulates the, the beautiful opportunities that you have with young people to just see something at the right time um, and seize it and do something with it. So both of those things really, I think, turned me around. Because by the next year, I was the biggest nerd. <laughs> I was in school every day. I was sitting at the front. I was paying attention. I was like really trying my best. And I think it goes to show that a little bit of nourishment went a really long way. And sometimes you just need someone to believe in you. Yeah, 100%. I remember when they were like, you can totally do this talk, this presentation thing. I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> yeah. Shock. 
now you've got your own radio show and podcast and your voice is everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nuts. I'd say that it's very surprising for the school that I first went to. <laughs> if I was just to say, oh, by the way, I did a PhD and now I run a radio show and do like youth outreach stuff and I'm really <laughs> committed about it. I swear I turned out okay. <laughs> I'm sure you were an integral part to that journey. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were going to give some advice maybe to yourself as a young person, what would that, what sort of advice would you like to give to young people? That's a really tough one because I kind of think that for me I needed to go through a lot of that stuff to um, become the rounded individual that I am now. And I really value having that perspective of the person that was completely disengaged and disenfranchised with the education system to the person who really thrived. I really value having that perspective. So what I kind of maybe would say is if you are a person who does kind of know what you're about but you're changing to fit in don't do that so I think that when I was younger I really felt like I didn't want to be too opinionated or I didn't want to be too controversial or lots of these things I felt like I had a a bit of an idea of what I was about but that I didn't want anyone to know it (laughs) I just wanted to kind of fit in and be a little bit invisible, but be fun. Um, and then if I could go back and give any advice, it would be stop trying to fit in. Just do you. It'll be fine. You'll find your people. And value people with real integrity and authenticity above all else. Doesn't matter any of the other parties or Facebook or Bebo friends, whatever. Just you know, stay true to your values and you'll find your people and you'll be much happier for it. Because I think when you're a teenager in particular, it's so easy to just bimble along with things and not really stand up for what you really truly want or for what you think is right. Uh, Like I remember being talked out of studying chemistry by those two girls that I did the um, Lego robotics thing with because they didn't want to do chemistry. And they said, well, how could we possibly help you? You know, you're not clever enough to do that on your own. Um, and, and I remember it clear as day. And I was like, oh, you know, you're right. I, I shouldn't do that. And I remember that when I went to university, I was so anxious about doing chemistry. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going to be terrible. I'm going to fail this. And ironically, I did physics instead because they were both doing physics. And I bloody hated it, um, which was ironic. But and then I went to chem, I did chemistry at university and I loved it. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like the way that these things change. And, and I don't know if I would have gotten that out of school, to be fair. But I kind of wish I just stuck with it and done what I wanted anyway. And there's lots of examples I can think of during my teen years in particular where somebody, where I would be like, I think I'm going to do this. And I wouldn't, you know, have very much conviction in saying it. And then somebody would be like, no, no, you shouldn't do that because you're not clever enough. You're not going to do very well. Who's going to help you? And then I'd be like, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. I'll just do the one that people are telling me to do. Yeah, and I would just say, sod that, don't do it. And in actual fact, as an adult, every time you've stuck to your guns and been like, no, this is what I think I should do, aligned to what, what I believe my values are and what I think is going to go well, it's gone really well. Um, so you probably have a pretty good gut instinct. <laughs> and I would say that that's true for most people. You Usually people have given more thought to things than we give them credit for. So back yourself, young people. You know more than you think. It's so true. And sometimes that process of backing yourself and being authentic or whatever, that can be really, really hard and it can be lonely for a period of time. But the moment that it stops being lonely, you find your people 
and you have that success that comes from backing yourself, all totally worth it. Yes. There is a bit of a time to be a lonely penguin, but you will eventually find your other penguins. It's fine. You will get there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> sure, we just, we just turned all teenagers into penguins, but it's probably not the worst thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's all super solid advice. Super solid. Thanks. So with either that's what I call science or uh, and or your medical research, is there any way that the general public can support you? That's a really good question. I mean, the Menzies Institute for Medical Research are always looking for people to donate money to their good medical research if people felt so inclined to do that. Alternatively, we would just really love, you know, if people liked or follow us, uh, that's what I call science, on whatever social media platform they're on, um, or like and subscribe to our podcast, that would be really great, because um, that will help us. And most of our, we're not at the stage where we ask for money from listeners or members or anything. We're at the stage of just writing a lot, lot, lot of grants. <laughs> um, so those types of things really help us be more successful in our grant applications. Um, and if you do enjoy the comment content, comment on it, let us know, and then that will also help us reach more people and spread the good word of science. Fantastic. And we'll make sure to include, like, obviously all the links to the socials and the websites and the things in uh, the show notes for this episode. We'll be linking, etc. Great. Thank you. Another possibly curly one. Is there any misconceptions out there about whether it's science communication, cardiovascular disease, anything, anything that the public regularly misunderstand that you'd really like to squash this is sort of myth busting time yeah so i think most of us know that risk factors are associated with cardiovascular disease like smoking being overweight whether or not it runs in your genes so family member that's close to you had a heart attack or a stroke when they were young i think most of us inherently know a, like a bad diet or an alcohol intake are, are linked with increasing your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke but i think we also think that then it's your fault you know, it's something that you did to yourself by all of these bad behaviors or it's something that only happens to old people. So we don't need to worry about it now. And that's, com that's, that's pretty untrue. <laughs> it's not completely untrue. I was about to say completely. It isn't. We do know that those who have two or more risk factors are at much higher risk than those with just one. And, you know, 90% of the Australian population have one or more risk factors. So we need to take it pretty seriously. But it's really hard to quit smoking and it's really hard to eat well and exercise and do all of the good things I know it's a constant struggle for me so and I have lots of resources at my disposal you know I have good health literacy assets in terms of I know that I can seek out information and make decisions about my care uh, I have a good doctor I can afford medical treatment and health insurance um, so I think my main thing would be um, take heart disease risk seriously think about your risk factors particularly you know if you're over 40 or over 35 if you're indigenous um you know think about having your blood pressure measured and your cholesterol measured make sure they're measured accurately by accredited people or using a validated blood pressure device and you know if you're being advised to take medications think really seriously about whether or not that is the right choice for you because generally speaking if you have lots of different risk factors and your blood pressure and your cholesterol are a bit high, you probably are going to benefit from treatment. The one caveat to that is, you know, if you only have one risk factor, like just mildly high blood pressure, maybe you don't need to take medications for the rest of your life. But I just think that for me, let's 
drop the rhetoric that people cause cardiovascular disease to themselves by smoking or having bad health behaviors or, you know, living in poverty because they can't afford to eat good food or whatever. I'm not saying that particularly articulately um, or particularly well, but I think we need to drop that myth. And then the rest of the things that we need to do are, you know, measure our health in the best way that we can, and then make really informed decisions, measured decisions about whether or not we need to change something in our lifestyle or we need to take medications to reduce our risk. Because I find it phenomenal that in this day and age, heart disease, including heart attack and stroke, are still the leading cause of death, responsible for nearly 3 million deaths worldwide every year. Um, And, you know, we've seen that COVID has cardiovascular complications as well. So that's probably going to have a big uh, toll as well. So that that would be the biggest myth that I would bust. It's not just old people. It's not just people with bad health behaviors. We all need to take responsibility for our cardiovascular health. And also, it's never too late to turn the corner. So, you know, if you've been a bit like myself, a little bit overweight, a little bit inactive for a period of time, you're maybe not eating the best, any small change that you can do is better than no change at all. Whether or not that's getting a dog and just walking it for five days, five five days a week, five minutes a day, or whether or not that's you know increasing the amount of fiber that you increase each day, nothing else. You know you'll see some positive changes by just making one or two small changes that you can keep up forever. So it's never too late. Stay on top of it and get regular heart health check. Fantastic. I reckon that's a great message. Well, obviously it's a great message for everyone, but yeah, keep it sustainable. <laughs> Yeah, small and measurable. Don't go and try and change everything all at once. I did read an interesting study that even if you're, you know, over 50, over 60, even over 70, if you just start walking for 10 days, 10 minutes a day, you'll see big health improvements. It's the same with people who have smoked all their life. You know, if you stop smoking, by if you quit for a whole 12 months, your risk of cardiovascular disease is like you've never smoked before. So, it's never too late to turn it around. Don't feel defeatist. You're capable of doing more things than you think, and it will improve your health. Just do it small and measurable and sustainable so you feel good. Small, measurable and sustainable. I reckon that's a great little slogan. (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Uh, No, I don't think so, other than to thank you for a excellent conversation and the opportunity to come and speak with you this has been very enjoyable it's very strange to be on the other end (laughs) fantastic (laughs) okay so for the last question have you got a virtual high five for anybody anybody at all who you think is doing an awesome job and everyone should just give virtual high fives to oh that's a tough one because i know so many but my biggest shout out Um, particularly because we're recording this during NADOC week, is for Michaela Jade, who is CEO and founder of Indigital, which is using augmented reality to tell Indigenous stories on country um, from elders, which I just think is phenomenal. But she also does an amazing schools outreach programs using tech to inspire the next generation to pursue STEM. And given that less than 1% of students in university studying STEM subjects are Indigenous. I think it's really important to rally around people like Michaela, people like uh, Corey Tutt from Deadly Science, who are inspiring kids on country to pursue STEM. I can't top that. (laughs) There's so many cool things that, uh, 
it's it's really cool that sort of work yeah it's amazing and I think it's also like you know to all other listeners I always think I used to think oh how do people know these things um Twitter is a great tool and I think if you're looking for it you can really find amazingly diverse STEM initiatives and people in STEM but you just I think it is an intentional ally step that you need to take yeah you can't just have your eyes open you actually have to go hunt some of these things down yeah yeah for sure everything doesn't fall in your lap. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Neve. It has been, well, I think we've covered pretty much everything and we've solved all the world's problems. So thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really enjoyable. And I'm looking forward to sharing your podcast with our network and supporting your work even more because I think it's great that you're profiling um, people and that lots of women have put their hands up. It's been so inspiring. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions, he gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats, and he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 